loves, and welcome to another episode of Evolving ABA. And today we are here and we have an incredible panel of humans joining us to talk about a very important topic. We're going to be talking today about the over-identification of Black boys as behavioral problems in our educational systems. And we're gonna have a conversation in service of and standing for how the science of behavior can contribute to changing, evolving and transforming that trend. So I, I don't wanna talk too much you all know me, I'm Dr. Nasia Sorrentioni-Ulazi, but again, what I have been able to do is pull together a panel of powerful humans who are actively engaged in this work of evolving ABA towards standing for all children and humans, but now in service of standing for Black boys. So I want to start off with introductions. First, I want you to meet an amazing human. Some of you know her, Jereen Francis, extraordinary human being in the space of behavior. Jereen, can you introduce yourself to everyone? Sure. Hello, everyone. And I just want to start by saying thank you, Dr. Nasia, for this opportunity. I am excited and honored to be a part of this awesome panel. First and foremost, I am a mother of a twice exceptional, handsome Black teenager. He's 15, just started high school this year. With my experience as a parent raising this Black boy in the public education system, it motivated me to learn more about how the school system works and when it comes to supporting my son behaviorally, especially when he engaged in things that I was would say was developmentally appropriate, but seemed to be very disruptive to his teachers. So with that, I am a board certified behavior analyst I've been in the field since 2009. I received my credential in 2021. So it's been quite an amazing journey in the field. I love it. I currently work in the public education system. So I am just so happy that I can support other students, especially our black and brown students in supporting them behaviorally in the public education system. Thank you. Thank you, Jereen Francis. Thank you so much. Also with us, we have someone um, who is near and dear to me, um, actually my baby sister. And I want to introduce you to Danielle Robinson. Can you share a little bit about yourself, Danielle? Hi, um, I'm the mother of a six-year-old black boy. Um, he's in the public school system. Um, and he's uh been having these behavioral difficulties. Um, so we're trying to navigate through that now. Um, I'm also 
the director of nursing at a behavioral health facility for adults. Um, so I'm very familiar um, with these issues and I see the end result of the public school system failures um, every day. Thank you so much, Danielle. Thank you for taking time out to share your personal experience and your expertise as a professional in a, a facility that serves adults in behavioral health. And finally, we have Dr. Bruce Tenor, who is a administrator in public education. Dr. Tenor, can you please share a little bit about yourself and your background with everyone? Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, thank you very much. I sincerely appreciate this opportunity. Um, yes, currently right now, I have I am a principal um, in Southeast Pennsylvania in, um, for Chester County, for the Chester Intimate Unit. I'm a principal for 400 students, all exceptionalities and disabilities for autism, emotional disturbance, life skills, which is intellectual disability, multiple disability. Um, I was also a former principal for a school for emotional support as well. Uh, for students from kindergarten to sixth grade. And I also was, a uh, years before, I was a um, supervisor for autistic support uh, for four years for over 350 kids. So currently, right now, my role, again, I oversee, you know, a school with students with severe problem behaviors. I do have four children of my own. Uh, Ariana, who's 11. I have uh, Elijah, who's 10. Carissa, who's eight. And then Isaiah, who's six. So I have four beautiful children as well. So... Again, I'm just happy and honored to be here. Fabulous. Thank you all so, so very much. So what I want to do now is open. I want to open with a question. And this particular question, I want you to get us started, Bruce. Excuse me, Dr. Tenor. Dr. Tenor, my mistake. Um, it's all good. I use honorifics. I really do. I think that's important. Dr. Tenor, the first question that I'd like you to kick us off with is what systemic factors contribute to the over-identification of behavioral issues in Black boys? And how can policy changes at the school and district levels help address these issues? Uh, from my experience, I did teach for over 10 years. Uh, I was a teacher, then I moved my way to administration. So I'm going to give you a perspective from a teacher as well as a school administrator. Um, first and foremost, there's kind of the systemic barriers or issues that leads to um, disproportionality is um, over-identification in the special education for students and emotional disturbance. And you'll see, uh, based on data from my personal experience and also statistically, um, higher referrals, uh, higher suspensions, and also higher expulsion as well, too. And this leads, as we all know, a prison to the pipeline. And if you look even in uh, many statistics for the sites for educational.com or the educational system is for statistics, you look at the referrals and you look at for out-of-placement disparate referrals, uh, Blacks triple or quadruple the amount of any other race and also multiple race combined as far as uh, disciplinary removals of school for alternative schools, 
uh, different placements, expulsions, removals, and those are raw statistics that you can just find um, in the educational statistics um, um, websites. You can find them all there as far as the disproportionality. So that's one. I also, from my experience, we talk about barriers, um, standardized testing. Um, they at times have been tied to several outcomes, including school funding, graduation rate, teacher evaluations. What this does is exasperate racial inequalities in school. So if you are not performing, um, you don't get any funds. And obviously we know a lot of funds are tied to better quality curriculum, technology, professional development, training, opportunities for a young black uh, children that they don't they may not have. So that's why you see a lot of intercities. Um, they don't have the same type of uh, maybe opportunities or even facilities uh, to help our, our our children. So that's the second one I see. Uh, a third barrier is also uh, it's um, a curriculum that favors Eurocentric biasness and it, it reviews how much um, folks from the European descent, what they, if you look at social studies curriculum or other curriculums, it just biases towards um, one particular race. So what it does is two things. One, it gives this notion that one particular race is more superior. If all you do is just show how wonderful you know European descent did for America. You know what that does is it places the others, um, you know, things on extinction of what others are doing. So no one's contacting what other has done. You know, folks don't forget that all the inventions that blacks has created is not being taught. You know, slavery instead of being the core curriculum, it's, it's kind of a footnote. Um, they don't go over. Um, anything historical that's monumental besides Dr. Ting, which gets a quarter of a chapter, going to go over the, the monumental things that Blacks have done in America and help. You know, we were the only ones that fought in every single war along white people, Civil War, Revolutionary War. We were enslaved by then. So these are important things that I see that um, definitely impacts um, as far as race. So just um, a European-centric biasness towards curriculum that we're teaching our, our children standardized testing that can be extremely biased and also disproportionality too. Um, there has been a, um, as far as going back to statistical standardized testing, there was a um, a professor, his name was uh, Dr. Um, Williams. Uh, and Dr. Williams was an individual that created a test because he wanted to just see, obviously this controversy about intelligence. It was called a black intelligence um, test uh, of cultural Homogeny. And then what they did was he analyzed based on black language, black lexicon, black culture, what our language was compared to others. Back in 1972, you can look it up. And what it did was he took 200 students all over the nation in Mississippi and Boston, and he did an assessment, black culture and language compared to white. So he gave uh, whites or non-blacks a test from our language. As you can surmise, blacks significantly scored higher when it came to testing language that we're familiar with compared to what whites may not be familiar with. Does that mean blacks are much more smarter? No. Does that mean whites are smarter? No. It just means that we got to be very cautious, conscious about when we talk about standardized testing and we're talking about the biasness, how it impacts us. So these are the things I think that are really plaguing and hindering in our schools. Love it. Thank you so much, Dr. Tenor. You've given us a lot of information to consider especially for me what salient is that cultural responsiveness piece. So I, I, inside of this question, and this question I really want to I want to put to you, Danielle, 
is the experience, like the experience inside of having a child in a system that can be so incredibly biased. And what I know from my own experience in raising a little black boy from a child to a man is that there's perceptions in the world of who a black boy is and who a black man is. And inside these systems, what I found is when my little boy, when he was a boy, people didn't see him as a boy. Because of these systems and the bias, what they often saw when my baby was four, five, six years old, they saw a man. So I just wonder inside of these systems, Danielle, what has been your experience? How do you experience some of these systems that you have to interface with as a parent and as a professional that Dr. Tenor has talked about? Do you find that it's positive? Is it negative? How does it impact you? And more importantly, how do you think it impacts your son? Um, you know, we had this conversation before, um, you know, what's really concerning to me is with labels like aggressive and everything. And I told you, he's going to be bigger. He's six now, but once he's eight, because he's almost taller than almost everybody that he has a contact with. So once he's eight, nine, they're going to treat my baby like a man. And he's a little boy. And, and that's what's so concerning for me. Because we know what's going to happen. We we know what's going to happen. They're going to treat him like a man, and he's going to end up in the system. He's going to end up uh, being disciplined as a man instead of a boy. And he has these uh, emotional disturbances that he's not getting any support for in the school. And, and that's my main concern, and that's my reason um, for joining so that we can try to, you know, talk about these things so that it can get better, not only for my son, for everyone's son that's going through this. Absolutely. Know? Absolutely. So thank you so much, Danielle, for sharing that perspective, which I, I see it. I'm clear. I see you, I see him, is when we have to interface with these systems and the bias is there, the system is biased, the people who are working within the systems are biased. And I wonder too, are people actually seeing the children, right? Are they seeing the children or is it, oh, this child is a problem? Not that this child has a challenging behavior that we can work on, we can teach, but no, this child is the challenge. There's a difference. There's a distinction. And I wonder too, do, are we interacting? Are parents being interacted with? Like they are the challenge. They are the problem. So thank you for bringing that to light, Danielle. Um, that will open up a lot of people to how they might, how a parent and a child might experience this, these systems. Thank you. And I want to kick it to you now, 
Uh, Jereen, can you share from a systemic perspective? Sure. I'm going to start with the parent perspective because as I was navigating a large school system for my son, my challenge was really finding an area that had good schools as a single parent growing in this field, right? And thinking about my salary and what I could afford with housing, like starting there as far as the systemic barriers is just where are the good schools located where maybe less of that bias would be present, especially when you think about uh, lower economic status and what just kind of the perceptions of who a parent is and how they're showing up and how they support their student or their child or not. And then in turn, how do they support the school with their child that may be engaging in some behavioral problems? I'll start there because even when I think about where I am now with my son in high school, I was he needed to be in this school cluster. We are still in the same county, but literally a mile and a half just across the street. It's a completely different experience when it comes to how teachers, administrators um, interact with my son. That'll, I'll start there. Next, professionally, um, when I think about policies and procedures, they exist. You know, they do exist. Um, it's just about people actually implementing it, right? Understanding why those systems and policies are in place and understanding that it needs to be implemented equally across all students, no matter what they look like, no matter what their ability level is. And I, from my experience, I will say that they're, you know, I think about how do we change behavior and it's really the consequences, the feedback that we receive. What what are we doing well as teachers, district level personnel, administrators to hold each other accountable to say, hey, I noticed that you followed the steps verbatim. Thank you. So you see when you did that, what resulted in a really fair and equitable experience for this family, for this child, for this student, versus when people don't follow those policies or the systems or the steps, this is what results from that. And that's not okay. There is a lack of holding people accountable and really like having those conversations, those difficult conversations and checking people when they're not doing the right thing. So I would say the policies some are there. Because I know the policies are there. It's just about, are we actually trained to do it, follow it? And if we're not following it, are we being held accountable? Thank you so much, Jereen. Y'all, you know, I'm just, I'm doing a lot of head nodding. But I'm also going to really speak something because I, I believe it needs to be said. There are going to be a lot of people listening to this. Again, I worked in public education for a long time, and I'm not going to identify any particular school district. But what I will say is what I found was 
some of the systems that I interfaced with, what they depended on is parents saying, okay, yeah, you can do that. That's what kept the system going. And what my call to action is, and I believe yours too, is supporting parents, families, professionals in questioning, in pushing back at the system. Because the system, just imagine, in most public education systems, if all the parents came in and questioned what was going on, my thought is the system couldn't handle that. So what the default is, is okay, they won't say anything. And now that becomes normal. And at the price of our little black boy. So Again, I, I think I may be, I may be the oldest one on this panel. So this is what I want to share. I have a, a little, a broader perspective in that my son is older. So I had an opportunity to see him move from childhood into adulthood, as well as his peers. And this is what I found with the with little black boys. Over the years, all of these things that you all have spoken to, the way it played out is... If you are a little black boy in a system that doesn't affirm who you are, by the time you get to seventh grade, eighth grade, and for sure, 10th, 11th grade, the messaging is school isn't for me. This isn't for me. I am a problem. And I don't know if people are present to these practices. That's what that creates. A narrative of, I am the problem. School is not for me. So if school is not for you, what becomes for you? What alternative do you have? So I'm real passionate about this. I thank you all for your sharing because it's real. There is at least, I look at my son's friends, so many of them said, no, I'm not going to college. I was never good at school. Never had a chance to be. So this is, again, it's a it's a bigger and a broader conversation, and I thank you. I want to move to towards another question. This is a powerful one, and I just did a talk on this for APBA. Restorative practices versus punitive measures. How can schools shift from punitive disciplinary measure to measures to more restorative practices? And what are the potential benefits of this approach for Black boys in their academic success, right? If a child doesn't know how to read, what do we do? We teach. If a child doesn't know how to do a math problem, we teach. If a child needs behavior support, we punish. So Jereen, I'd like you to kick us off with this one, with your experience. Thank you. Um, I, I love that quote, actually, the, you know, we teach them how to read, we teach them how to um, swim, we teach them how to ride a bike. But when it comes to teaching kids how to behave, 
we really missed the mark. Um, and thank you for pitching this over to me because I did want to make sure that when I thought talked about the systems and the policies and initiatives that we have in place, it makes me think about the MTSS process or multi-tiered systems of support. And that is where we are supposed to be doing the teaching, right? And I loved how you made that connection of we're just seeing the, the student as a behavior problem, as, as a disruption to my classroom. But when asked, what is the target behavior of focus? What is that challenging behavior? No one can tell me, right? So I've been really working with my district and, and just over the years, uh, let's focus on what that target behavior is that we're saying that we need to initiate further behavior support in that MTSS process for this student. And let's make sure that we actually have that data to, to show what was happening before the intervention. And now that you've been implementing this in intervention, I know it's an extra thing that you may have to do. Teaching is hard, <laughs> teaching is hard, but I know you're doing this extra intervention for this student, but let's see with this target behavior in mind, after you started doing these things, what's happening to the behavior? And I think that would help folks to really see, even though this child continues to engage in maybe other disruptive type behaviors, the behavior that we said we were going to focus on for change is actually changing, right? That's the first part. That's the proactive part because kids are going to engage in behaviors. Adults, we engage in challenging behaviors, right? So they're learning. They're learning what works and what doesn't work. And we just have to give them a little bit more grace and understanding as to why those behaviors are happening and figure out ways that we can support the environment for them to be successful. Now, when they do engage in those behaviors, when I think about restorative practices, we have to think about what is there to restore? If you didn't build that relationship with the student, if you didn't connect with them at that humanistic level, how do you restore anything? What is there to restore? So it starts with really thinking about this child as a human that have their, you know, they have their own wants, needs, preferences, likes, dislikes. And how can I connect with this student so that if and when they do engage in that behavior or that mistake, I am able to redirect them and connect with them, right? But if I don't have that relationship, then I'm going to go to those punitive measures. I'm going to say, how can I, how can, what can I do to make it hurt for them to engage in this behavior and learn not to do this again, right? And that's not going to change behavior long-term. That's not going to teach them how to get their needs met long-term. So I really advocate for that MTSS process, positive behavior interventions and supports, really trying to build those relationships, notice when students are doing well. So when they do make mistakes, you can restore that relationship, that community in a more positive way. Thank you so much, Doreen. You know what really hit me about what you just said and where I'm really aligned with all of it, but especially around relationship building. Relationship, so truly, 
This is my, my thought in my years of experience, behavior change occurs most powerfully for children inside of a relationship, right? The relationship between the teacher and student and the teacher and the parent, right? If you have that, that is still behind behavior change. This is what I want to do. And I want to open this question up to you specifically, Danielle. What does it mean to you as a parent to have teachers, administrators who are centered on building a relationship, one, with your child, and two, with you as a parent? What if that was present and foremost in every exchange? What would that open up to you? And has that been your experience? You know, I, I have experienced this um, last year. Um, Mike had a teacher that wasn't interested in the interventions. They would um, suggest that she do X, Y, and Z. And she's like, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. That's going to disrupt my class. That's going to do this. And he had such a difficult time. I'm like, and he could tell. So he had more behaviors. And I'm like, you know what? Can we switch his teacher? He got another teacher that was more interested in trying the interventions, you know, working with him. And he did much better. Children can tell when someone is not interested in them, when someone does not care. They can tell. They can tell and their behavior shows it. I agree. I agree 110%. You know, our children, they may not have the, the vocal, vocal, the vocal verbal communication, the language to share it, but our children have their feelings, their emotions. Behaviorally, they have what I call signal detection. Our children know, and that impacts the relationship with the family. The other day, you and I were talking, Danielle, and you mentioned something. You talked about buy-in, right? Let me tell you, as a parent, how you can get buy-in from me. Love my child. Support my child. If I know you're in my child's corner, what you tell me to do, I'm going to do it, right? There, when there's not the centering of that relationship, there's not going to be trust, right? Because behavior change occurs, it occurs across times of day. It occurs across different environments and different people. It's not siloed in order for it to be so effective. So we as professionals need the support of our families, but we won't get the support of our families unless those relationships are centered and developed. So thank you so much, Danielle. And of course, Dr. Tenor, you as a school building principal are charged with, you know, overseeing a building full of professionals who I'm, I know you want to build relationships with families and children. So this is my question. 
How do you nudge that? How do you develop the centering of relationships as a building principle? Well, it, well, thank you for that question. Well, a couple of things. One, um, the, depending on the size of your school, you have to have a transparency and open communication with families, um, allowing families, particularly the ones who students may have significant maladaptive behaviors, having yourself, your staff, your teachers have an open dialogue and communication um, in regards to whether it's calling, whether it's messaging, whether it's um, letters, newsletters, constant communication. But the biggest things too is this, what I've noticed that I, I do this all the time, don't only call parents when things are going wrong. Call the parents when things are going right, okay? If you, especially any highlight of your child's successful day, you got to reach out to that family and to let them know that, you know, X, Y, and Z or this particular child, your child did this very well. Even if it was for 30 minutes, message them and let them know that we saw some glimmer of success. And that, you know, because many parents, you know, uh, when you first call, the first reaction is, and there's 99% of parents, what did my child do wrong, right? Um, but you want to re re recondition those responses when they call, they're not automatically assuming something's wrong and to the point where they're thinking something's good is going to happen or at least some kind of conversation that you can work through. And that that goes such a long way with the families. Um, but what you were talking about earlier in regards to, you know, restorative practice uh, and punitive measures, I, I think um, the reason why punitive measures occur because or punishment procedures, so to speak, or punitive measures, it's easier, it's hard to teach. Right. Taking time out and want to teach people. Some people may not want to teach. You got to take the time to teach. Going back to your point, the analogy you gave about, um, you know, behaviors, about certain behaviors we teach for reading, writing, math. When it comes to behaviors, we punish. Um, it's just people feel it's from a cultural learning history. Um, punishment is just easier. So we have to stop that notion where it's just easy to get the kid out of the classroom, write a referral, um, get discharged or move to another placement. And, and really work as a team with your behavior analyst, with your team, and, and really go out there and find procedures. Um, and going back to your points you were saying about pairing, this is when you're talking about, when you're working with a learner, if you're sitting with a new student who rolls in there, whether he's if he has autism, he or she has autism, non-vocal, limited verbal skills, or someone from any other um, exceptionality, or even a neurotypical peer, when you're building a relationship, you want to establish instructional control. The first rule of establishing instructional control is the pairing process. And it's the likelihood that instruction would lead to the desired outcome. You know, you build a relationship with the student, staff. You know, when instructional outcomes are strong, data says that the students are more likely to follow directives by the staff. And, and then now you're establishing school as a motivator. Now I want to go to school because school is fun. It's positive outcomes. You know, now it becomes now the teachers become an SD for something good, right? It signals the availability of reinforcement because you build a relationship to your to your lady's point. So again, strong instructional control, it definitely can improve the outcomes for all of our learners um, because the staff and the environment is highly reinforcing, it's highly rewarding. I want to come to school now. But that's where it starts though. It starts with the staff has got to, you know, going back and be cultural competent and just know what some students from a culture you're working with and what are you going to do to establish a strong relationship with that child? 
establishing instructional control. So when the learner, when he, he sees you or sees the work or the task, the desk, the environment, it's not aversive. You know, it's not this condition, motivation, operate reflexive where you want to escape the environment. It becomes a condition reinforcer where now, um, again, it's it signals the uh, the availability of reinforcement. When I see that staff, I see that teacher, I see those students, I see my desk, I see the work, things that has been historically um, uh, aversive to me is now becoming something that I want to do. And it starts with the pairing and building a relationship. Dr. Tenor, everybody, Danielle, Jereen, love it, love it. Um, You all are dropping so many gems and you're truly going to make a difference for the folks um, who are able to come into contact with this information. So I want to move on to another question. And some of it has already been touched on, but I want to just bring some intentionality to Teacher training and professional development. So I have been, I've worked in higher ed. I'm now, um, I am now a faculty director for a, a very large online program, but I've also been a faculty member for a landline brick and mortar program. And what I'll say is that there is definitely, specifically, I think, in what I see in teacher training is teachers lack training in behavioral technology and support. And what I see in many of our uh, training programs for behavior analysis is our folks aren't necessarily trained on relationship building, reflection. And my hope is that we start creating more programs that merge the two. So we have professionals in our field who are just trained across multiple disciplines. So trained to teach and to um, implement behavioral programming. So my question to you, in this one, I'd like to start you off, Jereen. What steps can be taken to ensure that educators receive the necessary training and professional development to recognize and challenge biases in behavior assessment and in discipline practices? It's a great question. Um, there is when we think about barriers, I think lack of training is one of those things. And then when you think about why is there a lack of training, it's time, right? That's a big thing that I hear is just, it's just not enough time. There's all these initiatives academically, social, emotionally, behaviorally that are competing with each other. Um, and And educators are having a hard time deciding what should I prioritize? What is a priority to the district, to the board, to whoever, to the parents, to the community? And if everything is important, I read this in a book, um, if everything is important, then nothing is important. And that has resonated with me deeply. Um, so I think steps to be taken is really first having a needs assessment really trying to understand what is the need and where does it lie. So we're not just 
throwing, <clears throat> excuse me, throwing training um, and initiatives at educators, but we are intentional about what we're training and educating our teachers and staff on. I would say too, it's it's it is behavioral training, right? Understanding behaviors, communication, functions of behavior, antecedents, consequences, so on and so forth. Like you don't need to do a full functional behavior assessment and functional analysis to just think function-based when interacting with students. Um, so having that basic understanding and knowing why it's important to understand and implement function-based strategies would be very helpful. I'm also seeing a lack of um, understanding around just, uh, we have teachers and there's, okay, so I also say there's like a teacher shortage. So just thinking about what that means as well when it comes to who is um, working in our schools and the training that they may or may not have. But just thinking about how do I engage my students in my lesson? Like, yes, I'm a content expert. I understand math, reading, whatnot, but how do I make this relatable to my students, how do I present this in a way that's reinforcing to them that they're willing to engage and connect with that content? You know, that culturally responsive education, all of that, because you can be a really great teacher and know your stuff, but you, if you're unable to engage your students, then does that even matter? Because you're gonna lose your students behaviorally because they're checked out and not engaged. So I, I can go on and on about training and <laughs> what's necessary, but I would say not just the behavioral training, but also learning how to be culturally responsive and how to um, present information in a more um, engaging and um an engaging way, I'm, I'm blanking on the word right now where you differentiate as well, right? Because not all students are on the same level, but knowing how to differentiate, how, how to um, promote active student responding and having frequent opportunities to respond, all of that. So what I think about is just that tier one classroom management practices, really honing in on all those things because they all are interweaved and really makes a difference when it comes to children behaving in the classroom. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Doreen. Thank you. Cultural responsiveness in training and equipping our educators, our behavior analysts to be culturally responsive is is what's called for. Thank you so much. And then I'd like to supplement what I'd like you, Danielle, to supplement if you if you um would like any information around what you would like to see as a professional, as a parent, what would you like our educators? professionals trained to do in the schools? Um, I found that the focus is more on compliance, the child not doing what you want them to do right now instead of figuring out why they're punishing. It's a reason why a child is not doing what you want them to do. But instead of focusing on, okay, if he doesn't want to do this right now, 
he's going to get sent home. Or if he has a behavior as a result of the whatever you want him to do, he's the problem. So I think that the behavioral training is key. And then to eliminate or lessen the focus on the compliance, because once you figure out what the problem is with the child, the compliance will come. It will come. Danielle, I think we're just going to have to recruit you into the field of behavior analysis because you're just there. This is our next behavior analyst. I know your, your nursing colleagues love you, but you're just speaking like a behavior analyst. And also, I thank you for that contribution because we haven't talked about it. But what I hear you talking about is we call it ascent-based practices, right? Really understanding what the child is telling us with the no, right? Okay, yes. What We, we want cooperation, but we are not here in standing for compliance, right? We are really, we should, we need to be really looking at what a child is telling us, looking at that. If they're saying no, there's powerful information in that. So thank you so much. And Dr. Tenor, would you like to contribute, supplement anything to what Jereen and Danielle have said? Absolutely. Well, my my opinion uh, to your question in regards to training development. I think the biggest problem is that we we start too late. We start when uh, students who are now professionals to start talking about cultural competence and he should start the university. It should be mandatory. If I had it my way, if Dr. Tenor can be the president of multiple universities, mandatory undergrad, if you choose to be in various positions, but we're gonna keep it to education that is to be for undergrad, that if you want to get to understand particular cultures, particularly the Black culture, it should be mandatory teachings with Black history, Black culture, should be multiple. A part of your um, uh, practicum is going to be understanding and being taught about cultural differences, particularly for, for Blacks, and teaching them the understanding of the history and the culture. Then after that, um, all teachers, as still students, um, should be, to me, mandatory that you do your student teaching in an inner city. If you're going to go out there before you graduate with that degree and you walk in there and say, I'm going to work with these kids, you have to understand uh, before you even get to that perfection. We don't want you graduating, having no experience, and then you're going into a school um, that you're not comfortable with due to a lack of exposure of your learning history. And then what happens, we have a lot of turnover in the inner cities. So before you even get there, every student who goes into, into teaching should have the opportunity. It should be mandatory that you have to find a local inner city and do part of your practicum inner city there, as well as participate in volunteer work. Don't just understand the kid in school where there's, you know, there, there are a lot of opportunities for you to interact with the students, but you have to really understand the culture, right? So participate in volunteer work in the black community. So know what black folks go through outside of school. So if it's going to be volunteer, uh, you know, at um, other activities or other social programs that can be part of your practicum too, so just to understand, have a good understanding of culture. That, that's to me the best way to have cultural competence. Not just sticking teachers out there with a hour video and you met your two hour, um, you know, your uh, annual cultural competence, you know, exam, and you take one little five question test about did you understand the yes or no, 
You have to really, if you really want to work and, and build a relationship, you have to understand the culture. You have to be exposed to the culture. You have to see what folks go through in the community to have a better understanding. And then once you get to school, so once you graduate, once you get to, this is all as an undergrad, but once you graduate a degree, and if you're going to work, um, you know, in any school, it should be, man so you want to talk about training professional development before we even get there, mandatory meetings on discipline referrals, monthly meetings, suspensions and expulsions, collect the data and find out if there's a disproportionality with blacks or any other race in your school, but if it's disproportionality with race, if you if your school makes up 5% of blacks, it can't be 80% of referrals are blacks. That can't happen. So you have to make sure that you have monthly meetings to go over the discipline referrals, suspensions, expulsions, alternative schools. You have to look, review the data, not just annually, monthly with your team, your principal, your social worker, your guidance counselor, your behavior analyst, your teachers, whole team. And then monthly mandatory trainings it should be lessons taught, activities, writings. We talk about cultural competence. So again, those things need to be a part of your curriculum. Not just, again, we're not talking about a three-hour training, annual training that they do at the beginning of the year in August when school comes in and then you don't hear about anything until the next year. It needs to be monthly mandatory trainings, lessons, activities, writings embedded into your curriculum. Wow, Dr. Tenor, the district you work in is blessed to have you there. Thank you. You just dropped some gems. Thank you so much. So we have time for one more, and this one needs to be answered pretty quickly because we're going to wrap it up. Unfortunately, this has been amazing, but I ask it for every guest on Evolving ABA. Um. And I will start with you, Jereen. What would you like to see towards the conversation we had about Black boys who are disproportionately being identified as behavioral, behavioral problems in schools? How would you like to see ABA, ABA evolve towards contributing to addressing this issue? Yeah, thank you for that question. I'm an ABA geek nerd. I don't use the terminology a whole lot. Dr. Tenor, I need to spend more time with you because your connections were like amazing. But what I would like to see is really, you know, one, just an overall understanding as to what our Black boys need, what mm -hmm. they need, um, and understanding them as human beings. Again, that have their own wants, preferences, and experiences. And even though it may look different from what you believe or how you show up, that if they are engaging in behavioral problems, let's see the behavior for what it is and not define our Black boys by the behavior that they engage in. So I would start with the target behavior, operationally defining what that behavior looks like sounds like and let's start there to be as objective as possible love it thank you so much Jereen and for Danielle if you could just share just what it is you want for black boys right within the field of education and um behavior and in our schools what would you like to see how would you like to see it evolve 
I would like for if these behaviors are identified for our black boys to receive the support that they need instead of being labeled as a problem. Give them the support so that they'll have the tools to be able to grow up and live productive lives and reach their full potential. Ooh. That's that's what I want. Oh, thank you so much. Very powerful. And finally, our Dr. Bruce Tenor, if you can give us our final thought on how we can evolve ABA. Yeah, I, I think students, uh, you know, in our school, <clears throat> excuse me, um, Black boys, so to speak, they need to contact reinforcement more frequently. Let's not wait and always talk about, um, you know, restorative practices. You know, those are all um, and punitive measures, all consequences. Let's get, let's talk about antecedent. Let's talk about motivation. Let's talk about what can we do to provide much more reinforcement for these individuals. So we're not in a position to debate that. Also to use the data is a very critical as VA analysts that we have to really work with the schools and use the data to make decisions contingent upon what the data is reflecting. And also lastly, just advocacy and policy, you know, parents, um, behavior analysts, teachers who get to collaborate together, work together. And if there's some policy that's going on in schools, um, you know, again, states make the law, districts, local school boards make the policies, then we're going to have to go out there. And if there's any policy that's restricting, hindering, or uh, uh, not allowing the enhancement of um, Black boys, then we have to go out to the board and be the ear of the board and push the board and just making sure that um, we're, we're better because when we know more, we do more and when we, um, perform and when we go out there and we, um, collaborate and we really use the signs to really guide our decision, it's going to be, have better outcome, meaningful, social, significant outcome for our boys. So making sure that we collaborate with our families, our policies, and making sure that we are the ear and push boards to make sure we change policy that again, that can allow any kind of hindrance or any kind of restrictions to enhance our voice. Thank you so much, Dr. Tenor, Jereen, Danielle, Dr. Tenor. I can't even put any into words how grateful I am that you would contribute your time, talent, and expertise to stand for this conversation with me today. I thank you. And to all of the listeners, thank you for joining in. My invitation is for you to keep the conversation going. So until next time, have an amazing rest of your day and week. Bye-bye.